Okay, so we are one parasha behind, but we are in parashat Lech Lecha. Hello everyone who's joining us in Zoom land and uh, welcome. We're going to learn parashat Lech Lecha. Parashat Lech Lecha is the beginning of the story of Abraham Avinu. And as I had said last in the last couple of shiurim, the shiur of uh, Noach and also Bereshit, to try to focus on maybe some elements of the story or some uh, some angles that we often uh, don't give as much attention to. They don't get as much love because they are not seen as core to the unfolding story, to the unfolding narrative. So people like to focus always, first of all, there's a tendency to focus on the beginning of every parasha, but also on the events that are considered to be uh, most central to the way we typically conceive of the story of Abraham Avinu, but that might not necessarily be the whole story and the whole picture. Obviously, everything in the Torah is important. So, Abraham Avinu, of course, is told to leave his home. He leaves everything behind. He leaves behind his wealth. He leaves behind his comfort. He leaves behind his family. He leaves behind everything familiar to him. And he heads to a place that he will be shown. Now, the, he's 75 years old when he leaves home. Uh, not young. And the 75-year-old Abraham Avinu has developed. And, I, and as all of the stories recount, Abraham Avinu is... Uh, intellectual, spiritual, personal transformation, how he came to recognize the existence of God, that he was raised, of course, in the same idolatry as everybody else in Mesopotamia at that time, and began to question it and began to wonder and started to look at the world around him. And to I think we talked about it, we might have touched upon it a little bit last week when we talked about how idolatry evolved. I think we did, uh, we did mention it a little. Um, the sort of the evolution of idolatrous uh, belief and practice. Avraham Avinu starts to poke holes in that and eventually um, begins debating people and begins confronting people and becomes a controversial figure. And one thing leads to another. And at the age of 75, he finally is told by God to go out, uh, to leave the conventional society in which he was raised and to sort of proclaim these truths uh, to a broader audience. And so he comes to Eretz Canaan. Now to us, Eretz Canaan is Eretz Israel and and, and the specialness of Eretz Israel is self-evident to us because it's Israel. We don't, have any, we don't need anybody to tell us that Israel is special. It's very close to our hearts. But why was Israel chosen for Avram Avinu at that time? Now, again, you can give an explanation that is a supernatural explanation. And perhaps there are, and definitely there are commentaries who take that approach and who claim or who, who, who argue that there is some quality of the Eretz Yisrael that makes it especially, um, especially fruitful for spiritual life in ways that maybe we can't fully understand. The environment does that. But there's a very simple practical reason why Eretz Yisrael would be chosen also. Not necessarily making recourse to anything supernatural, but that simply if you want to proclaim a message, you have to go to a place that has a great deal of traffic going back and forth. And Eretz Yisrael was located precisely in the middle of the two, uh, of the two major centers of culture and trade in the ancient world in Mesopotamia and in, the, in Mesopotamia, in, in, in that area of the world, the ancient Near East. To the north, you had Mesopotamia, which is where, uh, where um, Abraham was from. And in the south, you had Egypt. These were the two main uh, centers of culture and commerce at that time. So if you wanted to get the biggest audience possible going into Egypt and trying to challenge the religion of Egypt would be dangerous, just like trying to challenge a religion in Ur, Kasdim, didn't work out. 
But if you want to catch people as they're walking by, ask any Chabad emissary, what do you do? You find a heavily trafficked area where people are not moving so quickly that you can't stop them. You want to go on 495 and try to stop people in their cars, they won't stop. But you go somewhere where there are people walking in and out a lot, and they're trapped, but they're, they're not exactly busy, but they're not exactly, you know, uh, you know, they're not moving too quickly, but they're not busy with anything, and you're able to grab them. So maybe when they're coming out of the supermarket, or they're walking up to the hotel, or places where there's a lot of foot traffic, and people are not yet involved in, in another activity where you can get their attention. So Avram Avinu is sent to basically what was the highway. Um, Israel was the highway, between um, uh, the, the north and the south in terms of ancient culture, uh, Mesopotamia to the north and, um, and Egypt to the south. And so he was basically standing on the highway, but obviously back then the highway was not like the highway of today where people are traveling at 60 miles an hour if they're following the uh, laws of the country, 55 miles an hour or 65 miles an hour, whatever it was, but people were going along on donkeys or they were going along on camels or they were traveling by foot. So it was easier to get their attention and to engage them. And so this was neutral territory, but it was heavily trafficked territory. So it wasn't like he was challenging the authority of Egypt or he was challenging the authority of, of, the, uh, of Ur-Kasdim. He wasn't challenging anybody because it was on neutral territory, but he knew that he would have a steady supply of, um, of uh, interested audience members all the time, and that's exactly what happened, as we know. So when Avram Avinu leaves, of course, he has some concerns. How is anyone going to know to listen to me? We've all been to the city and seen the people with those signs proclaiming all kinds of crazy stuff, and nobody listens to them. Uh, you know, they have all these conspiracy theories or, they, uh, or religious messages in New York City. You see them all the time. Nobody takes them seriously. How are people going to take me seriously? How am I going to build a family? How am I going to build a nation? How am I going to make money? All of these questions Abraham Avinu was wondering. So in the beginning, Hashem tells him, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to give you children. Don't worry about that. Those are a means to an end. You go focus on the mission and I'll make sure that you have everything that you need to accomplish it, that you'll have the fame that you need, that you'll have the recognition that you need, that you'll be able to build a family to continue the legacy and you'll be able to have the means to support yourself and not be dependent on anybody else. Everything I'm going to work out. And so Avram Avinu goes. And, um, and much, yeah, yeah. What did you want to say? Yeah, so the, uh, my question is, so are you saying that a who is not necessarily it picked to go to Canaan to go to his land because of any other specific reasons other than well, I'm saying I don't, I, I don't know. They're, they're, right, there they're are definitely some Mepharshim that say that Eretz Yisrael has an intrinsic special quality to it, but that's like beyond our ability to comprehend. So we don't really understand what this, let's say, supernatural quality that makes it, even some of the commentaries that we call rational commentaries, meaning that they generally veer away from supernatural interpretation, like the Ral Bag, for example, says that there's some characteristics of Israel, the environment, just like there are some physical environments that lend themselves to um, certain emotional or intellectual or spiritual experiences, the physical environment can, can do that. Because it, so he says that there's something in the physical environment of Eretz Israel that actually promotes uh, a, a deeper spiritual and intellectual connection. And that's why it says, We say that it's a statement in the Gemara that the air of Israel makes you wiser. Now, you can, again, interpret that in a supernatural way, that it means that there's something about the environment, or even, you don't even have to call that supernatural. Maybe you could say that, like if you live in the Arctic, you're not gonna have, the, you're, not, you're gonna be freezing all the time, you're not gonna be able to focus on anything, and if you live in uh, a place that's too hot, too cold, too dry, 
uh, there's droughts, there's, whatever, you're not going to be able to focus on, you know, it's, it's going to affect you. Go live in a place where it's always cloudy, it's always raining, it's always dark, you're going to be depressed emotionally, you're not going to be able to, you go to Israel, it's so beautiful, you're going to be inspired, and, and, and so you could say that's not really supernatural, it could be that the, the land is beautiful, uh, and the land is, uh, is infused with certain quality that, that promotes human growth, it could very well be. So, uh, so you can interpret that physically, you can interpret that psychologically, you can interpret that supernaturally, or you could interpret it as a, a pragmatic matter, which is that Avram Avinu's goal is to spread knowledge of God in the world. So he has to go to the place where he's going to have the uh, broadest audience, just like anybody who wanted a message to be, uh, you know, you try to get, um, if you can get a commercial during the Super Bowl, then you're most likely to get your message out. It was kind of like that. He had the, uh, an audience, you know, the biggest audience possible. And so he goes, and of course we know this, that much of the story of Lech Lecha, with the exception of the end, which I would like to touch on in the, in the conclusion, but is Avraham Avinu's interactions with others. And the first interaction he has is with Egypt. Now, when Avraham Avinu arrives in Eretz Yisrael, the first thing that happens, he, it says he builds an altar to God and he calls out in the name of Hashem, Hashem, which is in, um, in verse, uh, verse 8. It says, He's calling out in the name of God. So he's proclaiming God's name to the world. In fact, we say a pasuk, one of the pasukim that we say in the Hallel, when we talk about, uh, when we read the Hallel on, on Chagim, on Rosh Chodesh and Chagim, we say, To you I offer an offering of thanks and I call out in the name of Hashem. And the Ibn Ezra there in Tehilim says that that is the same concept of Avram Avinu. It says he built the Mizbeach and he called out in the name of God. In other words, he would bring, he would express his gratitude to the Creator and then People would say, what are you doing? What, 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 why are you building an altar here? What's it? And he would say, I'm, I'm acknowledging God. And so that would be the opportunity for him to share his awareness of the one God. Now, he immediately encounters a major practical problem, which is there is no food. There is a famine, which roughly translates to meaning that there is no rain. Right, so since there is no rain, there is no food. And since there is no food, there is no way to stay there. And Avraham Avinu is not your typical 20... 20th or 21st century religious person who believes God will save me and therefore I should just stand here in Israel and stay and uh, die of starvation rather than take care of my needs. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, well, obviously God told me to come to this land, but right now in order to eat, I need to move. So Hashem doesn't tell him what to do. He realizes that that's what he has to do. He's a practical person. He realizes that the first thing is survival. He can't. So, you know, if you were Avram Avinu, you'd probably be thinking that this is a disaster and, and this is a fail of the mission. You know, you came to Eretz Israel and there's not even food. But what ends up happening is he goes down into Egypt. In Egypt, the Pharaoh takes his wife and then God intervenes and brings plagues upon the Pharaoh. Sounds familiar with the intervention and the plagues on the Pharaoh. Obviously, there's a little bit of a foreshadowing of the story of the Exodus there. But then when Avram Avinu leaves, he leaves with a, an escort of the Pharaoh. Now, it could be that the escort is to make sure he doesn't come back because I think the Pharaoh was pretty upset that he misrepresented his relationship with Sarah and implied that she was only his sister and not his wife and therefore the Pharaoh ended up in an embarrassing, scandalous situation where he had taken a married woman. 
but the but the main point I think of the of this of the uh, the conclusion of that story is that what seemed at first to be a disaster or a major setback or a failure of the mission turns out in reality to be a great opportunity. Why? Because when Abraham Avinu leaves Egypt, he has two of the three blessings that God promised him already fulfilled. He's rich and famous because the Pharaoh has given him lots of gifts. And now everybody, believe me, everybody knows who Avram and Sarah are, or Avram and Sarai at the time are. Everybody knows who they are because they were on the cover of every tabloid, People magazine of Egypt, whatever it is. Everybody would know who this woman was that the Pharaoh took and then turned out to be somebody else's wife and he had to return her and he had plagues visited on him. So because that catapulted them to fame, when he comes back to Eretz Kena'an, what does it say? It again says he came back to the same place that he was originally. When he leaves Egypt, it says he came... This is in chapter 13, verse 3 in Breshit. He came back to the same place he was originally. And and then it says he came to the place of the altar that he originally made. And he called out in the name of God again. In other words, he's continuing his mission. But now when people see they say, hey, that's the tent of that guy Avram. And we don't know exactly what he's about, but we do know that he has some kind of special power or somebody up there likes him because we know that when the Pharaoh took his wife, God intervened on his behalf. So obviously there's something special going on there. So maybe we should listen to him. Maybe we should take him seriously because clearly he's a person of substance. Now Avram has earned some credibility in the eyes of the people. And then we know that Lot and Avram separate from each other. And much of the story of Avram is a story of separation. Separation first from his home, separation from Lot. He's going to have to separate from Yishmael eventually and even contemplate separating from his beloved son Yitzchak, the possibility of Akedat Yitzchak, of, of sacrificing his son. And at the end of his life, he sends away all of his children except for Yitzchak. So there's a lot of separation in the story of Avraham, and that's much of what he's about, which is separating from the influences of the external world in order to um, develop this pure sense of awareness of God and how to live in the presence of God. And so Avraham now, uh, leaving aside for one second the story of Lot, Lot goes and he, meet, he, he settles in Sodom. And then you have... This is not World War I or World War II. This is World War, I don't know, 5,000 years ago war. war. This is, the, these people, um, the, the story takes place in around the year, uh, you know, a, a couple of millennia BCE we're talking about. You know, this is the time of Avraham Avinu. And so we, the, the war breaks out between the four kings and the five kings. Five kings are subjugated by the four kings. The four kings, eventually the five kings rebel. The four kings put down the rebellion. And as I had mentioned on Shabbat, Avram Avinu normally would stay out of all of this political strife and all of this military conflict. He doesn't want to really get himself involved, get his hands dirty with that. But it turns out that his nephew Lot is caught up in the mix and he ends up being kidnapped by the four kings um, as they put down the rebellion of the five kings. And now Avraham feels that he has no choice but to intervene and save his nephew, which he does. And he brings 318 people, not a lot. And with 318 people, apparently five kings. Now, obviously, the five kings were small-time kings. You know, the, the, the four kings are like emperors. They were big shots. And the five kings were probably like king of a village, you know, king of a city. The four kings were 
massive, you know, real monarchs. And so they crushed the five kings. But Avram Avinu, in a typical, and you see throughout Tanakh is a typical thing, sneak attacks at night are a very typical, um, a very typical strategy in Tanakh. Um, that Jew, starting with Avram Avinu being the first one, but you see in Yahushua does it. Uh, there are many, many examples in the Tanakh of sneak attacks at night because the idea is why, why, why is it a uniquely Jewish way of going to battle? Because Jewish people, hopefully, the Jewish people were never interested in the glory of battle. The glory of battle means it has to be fair and square. It has to be by the light of day. You have to stand, you know, like they show those old movies, you know. They have to stand on opposite sides of the field and you have to, you know, face each other. It's like a duel. It's like it has to be, it's about honor, you know. But the Jewish people were not interested in the honor of battle. They just wanted to win. They were practical about it. So therefore, what did they do? They would attack at night with a small force. That's all you needed, a surprise attack. And you end up vanquishing the enemy. And this is something that you see throughout Tanakh in the book of Shoftim, in the book of Yoshua, nighttime sneak attacks, starting with Avram Avinu, because there's no interest in glory of battle. We don't mind a secret mission. We don't mind that it's, it's going to be because we took advantage of the vulnerabilities of our enemies uh, in the middle of the night and too bad for them. You know, we, we, don't, we don't need the honor and the glory of beating them fair and square. We just want to beat them. And so that's what Avraham did. He just wanted to beat them and he succeeded and, um, and then at the end, the postscript to the story is really remarkable. And I wanted to focus on that a little bit because we have, again, these little incidents that uh, the Torah doesn't spend too, too much time expending on them. Um, and so therefore, a lot of times we don't pay much attention to them. Even the whole story of the war with the kings, we don't pay a terrible amount of attention to. But what happens at the very end of the story is a mysterious character comes out. And this is on, in our Chumash, it's on page 64. In any Chumash that you have at home, it's in chapter 14, verse 18. This is in the aftermath of the war, after the five kings have now come to thank Abraham for saving them, liberating them from the four kings. And, Malkitzedek, the king of Shalem, which is taken to mean the king of Jerusalem, king of Yerushalayim, brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of the highest God, El Elyon. And he blessed Avram and he said, Blessed is Avram to the highest God, the one who created or who is the master of the heavens and earth. And blessed is the highest God, who handed over your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of everything. What, who is the he and who is the him? We don't know. Okay? But it sounds like, so when you read this story, most people, and even many of the commentaries, Rashi included, take this to be that this priest was actually, this melech, this king, this priest, was actually a priest of Hashem, uh, meaning he was a servant of Hashem. And some say that he was even the son of Noach. He was Shem, the son of Noach. He was some illustrious person and somehow happened to meet up with Avraham Avinu saying, wow, a kindred spirit, somebody who also believes in Hashem, one of my own uh, de- descendants has, has done Teshuvah and come back to Hashem, whatever it was. And therefore Avram gave him a tenth of what he had captured in the war because he wanted to support this Kohen who serves Hashem. That's how most people read it. Um, but there's another possibility. And the other possibility is something that 
that we now know is the more likely possibility, which is that El Elyon wasn't Hashem at all. El Elyon, even though we call Hashem El Elyon, I'll explain in a second, but El Elyon was actually a god of Kena'an. For the, because the, the Kena'anim that had many gods, and they had an El Elyon, the highest god of the many gods. Okay, like uh, you, you, every, um, every mythology, even if it has multiple gods, always has some chief god, like the Greeks have Zeus or whatever. So they had El Elyon. El Elyon was the name of the god. So he was the highest god, Konesh Amayvaretz, who was the master of heavens and earth, meaning he was the boss, he was the chief. But that doesn't mean that he was the only god, that, that, that uh, Malkitzedek was actually a monotheist, okay? Now why, I'll explain why that would be significant in a second. Right now you have Avram Avinu. Now remember, every time Avram Avinu feels, I, I'm, I'm projecting onto Avram Avinu, but every time you would think that Avram Avinu feels that he is deviating from his mission, because like when he came to Eretz Israel and he was forced immediately to go down to Egypt, okay? Or when he comes here and he, he's minding his own business and enjoying his mission of sharing wisdom of Hashem with the world and all of a sudden he gets dragged into a war. Who wants to go to war now, you know? He has to deal with that. Every time it seems like he's off mission, he gets on mission because he encounters these kings, the, four, the five kings now, who now recognize him as this great personality. He just liberated them from, the, uh, from their oppression of the, of the four kings. Plus, the chief priest of the area of El Elyon, the priest of the highest god, which I'm speculating, but it could be that because he's a Kohen the El Elyon, he's, meaning the king is the priest of the highest god. They probably had priests for a lot of different gods. Uh, but a lot of times the kings, especially in uh, the ancient world and in Mesopotamia, yeah, yeah. In Mesopotamia and in, in the ancient world in general, the kings and the, or the daughter of the king or whatever, they would be the priestess and the priest and all that. It was held by the politics and religion were 100% you know, together. So the, probably the king was the, the priest of El Elyon because he gets to be the priest of the highest god. That was the highest honor. Okay, so now what happens? You have that Avram Avinu has a conference right now with the political leaders of that area, including the king of Sodom, who lives his neighbor, basically, and with this chief priest, who's also a king of one of the neighboring areas, and he has an opportunity to interact with them. Just like we saw before that he gained fame by his interaction with Paro, now he has an opportunity to educate. In other words, we call this a teachable moment, right? It's a teachable moment with these kings and with this priest. And what did, what did the priest say? Oh, blessed are you to El Elyon. Now, if we look at this in historical context, in other words, if we look at it through the Midrash, then he's talking about Hashem. Then it's harder to understand. Like, what is this? All of a sudden, there's a guy who knows about Hashem coming in. So then wh- what's happening here, right? Why is he the one telling Avram, you're blessed to Hashem? I mean, it's weird. But if you take it in the historical context that El Elyon is actually the highest God of the pantheon of gods in, in, in Canaan and not Hashem, so then it makes even more sense that this priest is coming and saying, I understand what you're really about. You are, a, you are blessed by El Elyon. You are a very high level person because El Elyon, the highest God that we know, has blessed you and, there, and gave you, you know, success. So in other words, they were interpreting Avram's success in terms of their... Framework, 
their idolatrous framework. But what does Avram say? We'll see. And I'll show you what the what I think a good proof is for this interpretation. Because he said, first of all, the king of Sodom says, give me the people and I'll give you the money. You can keep the money. And Avram says what? Notice he inserts the word Hashem. He doesn't say, Now, if he was talking about the same God that Malki Tzedek was talking about just a few psukim ago, it would have made a lot more sense for him to say, Because you said that Malki Tzedek just called Hashem El Elyon, so then why doesn't Avram also say, I raise my hand and swear to El Elyon? It would make sense for him to be consistent, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he says, I raise my hand to Hashem El Elyon. Meaning, I want you to know that the highest God is not one of the members of the pantheon of gods that you believe in, and he just happens to be that he is the CEO of all the other gods. That's not how it works. There's only one God who, yes, is supreme over everything else, is El Elyon, is the supreme God, but not because there's a lot of other gods and he just happens to be in charge. Right? Because he's totally distinct. Hashem El Elyon. Hashem is Yudke Vavke, which means Hayahu Veviyyeh. Totally distinct. Totally transcendent. Not part of a pantheon of gods. And he says, he said, I won't take anything from you, not even a shoelace, nothing, because I don't want you to say that I made Avram rich. In other words, it will take away. What will happen? People will say, you know how Avram got rich? Oh, people do this all the time. Forget about El Elyon, just the king of Saddam. People say, you know how he got so successful in business? I gave him this and he became very successful. The guy will say, I, 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 I don't even remember that. that. That had nothing to do with... But a, a person who sees somebody very successful and they once gave the guy a quarter to, you know, to, to put in the, the parking meter, they're going to say, you know why the guy's so successful? Because I helped him. They're not, they gave him a quarter to park in the parking meter. Right? But, the, but you know, they'll, they'll feel that they have a share in what he did and they'll take credit for it. So Avram said, no, the whole thing is... What will they say? They'll say, you know how Avram became rich? He was a mercenary, basically. He saw that there was a conflict between these kings. He got involved and then he was able, he's like Dog the Bounty Hunter, basically. You know? He saw that there was an opportunity to go and get involved in this situation. And he, uh, is he still around, uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter? His wife died, I saw, right? Yeah. 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 Anyway, he, uh, you know, he was, he, they'll say he was like that. He saw an opportunity to get rich. So he, he came and saved us. We gave him some money. And you know why he's so successful today? Only because of me. How many times do you hear stories like that? Somebody very successful and somebody who isn't as successful will say, you know why that guy's so successful? Because 25 years ago I, get, I lent him $5 and now he became very rich. Whatever it is. So Avram doesn't want in any way to be linked with these other kings. He doesn't want in any way for it to be seen that he was a mercenary kind of guy who was going out and uh, building up for himself wealth through his uh, mercenary activities. And so he said, I don't want any money. And, and, but, the, but the main point, I think, that I wanted to, to emphasize here is that what would have seemed, what would have seemed like a deviation from the mission of Abraham Avinu in uh, getting involved in this military conflict becomes for Abraham Avinu a part of his mission. It becomes a, uh, it becomes for Abraham Avinu a teachable moment. So he has a chief priest and kings in attendance there for him to share his insights into Hashem and what his mission is with them. So anybody who didn't know, in other words, he's further building up his base 
of audience that he can reach with his message of oneness of Hashem because now he has these kings around him who are listening to him and very impressed obviously with what they've seen and this priest who's very impressed with what he's seen and thought that he had an understanding of it but Avram Avinu is taking that understanding to a new level saying it's not El Elyon, it's Hashem El Elyon. it's a different idea than what you originally thought so he's educating the top um, uh, the top leaders of that society. And when you see this, you can also have a sense of why later on Avram Avinu is so concerned about the people of Sodom that he tries to intervene on their behalf. When Hashem decides to destroy Sodom and Avram Avinu pleads with God to spare Sodom, that it's when you realize that Avram probably after this had a relationship with the people of Sodom. And this gave him an, this gave him an opening. He talked to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom now recognizes that he's a, he's a unique person, and now they have a connection. And that's why, as soon as Sodom is destroyed, it says that Avram moved his tent, meaning that up till then, what was he doing? He was trying to get the people from Sodom and like educate them and, and help them. And that's why he tried to pray to God not to destroy them, because I think in a certain way he was trying to help them. He was trying to you know, disabuse them of their evil ways. And he wasn't successful, but he was trying. And so that's why he was so concerned. But as soon as Sodom is destroyed, it says he moved away from that area because he had no more customers, basically. The, the customers dried up. So he, um, if you use the, uh, you know, again, the sort of the, the model of like what Chabad does with outreach, uh, you know, when there are no, absolutely no Jews in an area, so they have no reason to be there. So when there's no customers, I mean, there were no Jews back then really, but if there were no customers for him to share his teachings, so then he had no reason to be there, and so he moved. But this is the beginning of his, again, a further level of prominence for Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu's interest in prominence is not for prominence per se in its own right. His interest in prominence is that it gives him the opportunity, it gives him a platform to be able to share his message with a wider and wider audience. And that's exactly what he does. So he uses this military conflict, which he thought was, oh man, I have to go and save my nephew from uh, persecution and from kidnapping. And I really would rather not do this, but I have to get involved. And so he does it, but then it becomes an opportunity for him to actually uh, reach a wider audience with his message of oneness of God. And now also to, to attain a higher level of prominence and recognition and brand recognition in the eyes of the locals, both the religious leaders and the political leaders that now see him in a different light or in a better light than they did before and are able to learn from him. So he's able to have an impact that goes beyond. And, and that's why I think the Pasuk is so vague when it says, it could either mean that Avraham gave something of his to the, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, Malkitedek, but, uh, but according to the way we're interpreting it, it makes more sense the opposite way that, uh, that he brought lechem vayayin, he brought bread and wine, and he gave some to Avram Avinu. In other words, he was paying tribute to Avram Avinu that he saw as someone uh, deservant of a, uh, of a special gift. But in either case, the point is that Avraham is now using this as an opportunity to reach a broader audience, and that is the... Um, and that is the key of that particular story. And then we have, of course, the story of the Brit Ben Abiturim. That I, we're not going to have enough time to get into every story of Avram Avinu, so I wasn't going to focus on it too much. But I wanted to focus on Avram's as our last point. Avram's struggles with having children uh, first in um, first Ishmael's birth, and then eventually at the end of the parasha Brit Milah. Okay, so what is really happening in, in these stories of, uh, of Avram Avinu with his uh, issues with having children? And 
in the end that it says in, uh, in chapter uh, 16, it's Ted Zayin, where it says that after, even after Brit Ben Abitarim, when Hashem promised him that his own children would be very numerous and that they would be the ones to inherit his legacy and they would be the ones to inherit the land, he still didn't have any children. And so Sarai said, after 10 years of living in Eretz Israel, look, look, I'm an older woman already. I'm not going to be giving you any children. So maybe you should take Hagar. And of course, he ends up having a child with Hagar. But we see that immediately in the aftermath of that, Sarai seems to regret what she did to uh, bring Hagar into the picture because, she, because Hagar starts to treat Sarai as less. Right? As soon as she saw she was pregnant, her, her mistress became low in her eyes. She saw Sarai as being inferior as a result of the fact that she got pregnant. Meaning, if you're so great, Sarai, then how come I was able to get pregnant right away, but you're not? She interpreted that as a sign that she was superior and that she was really the woman of the house now and Sarai was secondary. And so Sarai was very upset about this and she complains to Avram and Avram says, you can do whatever you want, right? So it says, Vate'anea Sarai. Sarai tortured her. Now what does it mean to torture? Vate'anea Sarai, she was trying to correct her. Vate'anea Sarai, she was um, afflicting her really. That's the same language that we use for Yom Kippur. Right? Afflict your souls. It says, Sarai afflicted Hagar. What does to afflict actually mean? What does afflicting mean? When a person afflicts, let's say, a servant or a slave, what does it mean, le'anot? Right? What does it mean to, to afflict them? What? Create, bring cause. Well, it's more. It's really just to impact, to. like almost like a. Not, abuse, not physical abuse, like more, more like a mental abuse. Right, so you're right, you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it can be in a physical form sometimes, but it's, if you think about the difference between, let's say, just having someone as a slave and working them versus inui, or like lavdil, like what the Nazis did to the Jews in the camps, you know, when it wasn't like about getting the most effective labor out of them. It was more than that. Inui has to do with lowering a person's sense of self, really. Making a person, putting a person in their place is inui. What will, when a master torments a slave, you know, it's in order to make the slave realize that they are a slave and not the master. In other words, it has to do with putting them in their place. When people are, yeah. they say in interrogation, they, they do inuim on them. Yeah. It's like they have to get them in an uncomfortable position enough to like degrade them so that they give... They, they will give, they'll spill the beans. The beans. Yeah, and 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 that, and uh, then same interpretation actually applies to your body. In other words, what does inuy of Yom Kippur means that normally your body, your the desires of the body are what control your life and 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 cause you to do the wrong thing, cause you to sin, right? So inuy te'anuat means put your body in its place, basically. Realize that's why we fast on Yom Kippur and we abstain from the pleasures. In other words, you're saying that no, the soul is the master of the body. Right, the inui is to show who's really the master. Now that makes a lot of sense here because the idea was that Hagar felt that because she was pregnant, now she becomes the master. And so Sarai was trying to show her that no, that wasn't true. And then of course Hagar runs away and the Malach appears to Hagar and Hagar goes back and she has Ishmael. But what ha- what's very interesting is that Ishmael, even though he's born to Avram and, and he's not going to be the inheritor, he's not going to be the heir of Avram. So he's not sufficient. And, and when, when Hashem later speaks to Avram, after, after uh, so, so what's the point there? What's, why was it so, so significant that Hagar be put in her place? What, uh, Sarai 
can be misinterpreted here as being petty. She can be seen in a negative light. Like why is she so upset that this woman is proud of being pregnant and therefore she has to put her in her place? The significance of it is because Sarai's status in the house is very significant. It's very important. In other words, if a person would think that Hagar is really the one who's on a higher level than Sarai, that's what a person would have thought. Because look, God blessed Hagar and not Sarai. And so Hagar began to think that she was more deserving than that Sarai was not that great. And for people to think that would be disastrous because then they would think of Hagar as the person that they should be looking up to and Hagar is the person they should be uh, learning from when really Hagar was an Egyptian and Sarai is really the one who's great. It just wasn't the right time yet for her to have a child, but she would have a child. And so it, it would be improper for Hagar to arrogate to herself the status of superiority over Sarai and therefore Sarai had to correct that because her again everything that Avram and Sarai do is always on mission it's not off mission it's not that Sarai was upset and jealous of this woman it's that she's she's messing up the ba- just like later on when Yishmael starts to cause trouble and Sarai wants him to Sarah wants him to leave it's not because Sarah has a personal vendetta against Ishmael. It's because she doesn't want it to be, to be unclear who the real uh, bearer of Abraham's legacy is. It's not Ishmael. And people will think that it is Ishmael because he was louder, because he was, more, he was older. Who, who knows? So that's always a danger. And so it's like whenever you have someone, let's say who is a graduate of a certain school who does bad things. The school will always dissociate it. We, we dissociate ourselves from this person. We, you know, we disavow what they're doing because otherwise they're a bad representative of the school, right? Or a, a teacher has to be very careful about what students he takes because if the teacher takes students that then go on to behave in a way that reflects poorly on him, it undermines him. And so that was why Yishmael's position in the family was always complicated. But Hagar does experience a revelation of an angel that comes and returns her back home, meaning that Hashem's providence extends to Hagar and to any child of Avram. And of course, he's going to be blessed and fruitful and powerful and successful because he's a child of Avram. But this is where Brit Milah comes in. And this is where the last point that I wanted to make which is that when Avram Avinu is 99 years old, Hashem appears to him and says, Ani el shaddai, Walk before me and be perfect. Now I noticed this year something very interesting. That, that exact language is pretty much echoes. The rabbis say, what's the difference between Noach and Avraham? Because with Noach it says uh, that Noach walked with Hashem. Right? Eta Elohim etalech Noach. Noach walked with Hashem. But when it talks about Avram it says, Walk in front of me. And so what does it say? It says, Noah needed support. Avraham didn't need support. Right? It came from, he could walk before Hashem. He didn't need to walk with Hashem. Meaning Hashem had to help Noah to stay on the right path. He didn't have to help Avraham to stay on the right path. But that language, the fact that the rabbis point out that one nuance, if you look, the other word that's similar is tamim. Because what does it say about Noach? Noach ish tzadik, tamim It says the same language. Noach was a righteous person. Tamim He was perfect in his, or, you know, complete or perfect in his generations. And the, the commentary say, what does it mean tamim? It means tamim belibo, in his heart. Meaning he had pure intention in what he did. So Hashem is saying to Avraham, walk before me and be perfect. Meaning to say you have to be a person who has the full, fully internalized the values and principles of the way of Hashem and don't rely on any external support 
to help you. And that's really what made Avram unique, that Avram could leave everything behind, that Avram could strip himself of all of his connections with others and he didn't need any reassurance or any kind of, a, uh, any kind of, uh, uh, of encouragement from the outside. Whereas Noah, once he came out of the Teva and saw that the world was desolate and ruined, he drank alcohol because he had difficulty accepting that he was alone. Whereas Avram Avinu lived his life alone. Okay, he was able to separate himself from everything and everyone that might interfere with his mission serving Hashem. That's walk before me and be perfect. But look, Avram is 99 years old already. Most people figure by the time they reach 99 years old, their life is practically over, let alone that they're going to embark on a totally different chapter of their life that he was about to do. Now, what Hashem tells him is, I'm going to give you my, uh, my brit, I'm going to give you my, uh, my covenant and he tells them that you're going to have this covenant, it's going to be Brit Milah, and your name is going to change to Avram, and you're going to have a child from Sarai who's going to become Sarah. And of course, Avram at first doesn't believe that, and you see, he laughs. And he says, how could it be? Why don't you just let Yishmael, Lu Yishmael maybe Yishmael can live before you, maybe Yishmael can be good. Why do I have to have a child with Sarah? Sarah is already an old woman who is past the age of childbirthing, right? So... The, this whole story here, I think, is very critical because it points to a major transition that takes place in, the, in, in this moment in Avraham Avinu's life. And it's really a major transition going all the way back to the beginning of Bereshit because we had a lot of Bereshit that this is the Toledot Adam. This is Zesefer Toledot Adam. This is the book of the generations of man. This is the beginning of Bereshit. And then it says, this one had Vayolet Banim Uvanot. This one had sons and daughters. And this one had sons and daughters. And this one did. And then we had Noach and the children that he had and the 10 generations between Noach and Avram. Everyone is having children. And this one had Banim Uvanot. He had sons and daughters and so on. And then you come to Avram Avinu and all of a sudden he can't have any children. It's a, if, you, if you're really following the story, that itself is... That silence is a deafening silence, as they say. Meaning it's something that's shouting out to you to notice. That everyone is like, oh, they're all having tons of kids, ease. And then all of a sudden comes Avram and he can't have any children. And it's so complicated for him to have children. And it's a challenge. And then he has only Ishmael, but Ishmael is not even good enough. And then you have to wait till Yitzchak, which is a miracle. So what is the, what is the chidush here? Really, the novelty here is the idea of leda. The idea of giving birth is changing in Avraham Avinu. That it's not a biological phenomenon, it is a spiritual phenomenon. Or I should say, it's a connection, it's both. In other words, for the first time, the biological function of reproducing and passing on your genetic material, whatever we would call it today, right, to the next generation, is just a vehicle for passing on the spiritual genetic material that you need to communicate, the values, the ideas, the ideals that you're going to pass on to that child. So it's, it changes fundamentally what the reproductive act is. Okay, it's very interesting because you know, if you really pay attention, you'll notice how much of Bereshit is about the word Leda, about birth. Everyone is giving birth and everyone is having children and everyone is having more children. Banimu Banot. And how old were they when they had a child? And how long did they live after they had a child? And then how many children did that guy have? And it's all about leda, about children and having giving birth. And Noah also. But then you come to Avram and that's absent. It's conspicuously absent. Why is it conspicuously absent? Because he has to transform the whole idea of what it means to give birth. And the Rambam actually in Moran Avuchim talks about this. He talks about the idea of yalad doesn't only mean, or doesn't, he says, you shouldn't think of it 
only in its natural meaning as having a child, but you know that the, that the Tanakh oftentimes uses leda metaphorically, the earth brings forth fruit, and it'll say, it, you know, it brings forth, uh, the, the, the rain causes the earth to bring forth fruit. It's like the rain impregnates the earth and the earth gives birth. And, and then he says, and leda also is when you create a person intellectually and spiritually you create them. That's why it says, Your children, when it says you should teach your children, these are your students, because when you create a person's mind, okay, biologically, it's like it says that a father and a mother bring you into this world, but the teacher brings you into Olam Haba. What that really means is that your father and mother create the physical body. But the real essence of who you are is not your physical body. The real essence of who you are is your soul. And the one who shapes that and actualizes that is the one who's also like a parent because they're generating who you are. They're creating who you are. And so that idea of leda, of bringing forth. So the Rambam says this idea in the Morning of Bukhim, he talks about it a lot. He says this idea is, um, is one of the secrets of the Torah that, you know, that real giving birth is, is not just a physical process. And uh, even the fact that Avraham Avinu says that Tanefesh Asubicharan, the ne- the souls that they made in Haran. What do the rabbis say? The souls that they made in Haran. It means that they converted them to believe in Hashem. That's like creating the soul. It's like making them. So this transition happens, and that's why the Brit Milah. Ever, you could ask the very basic question of why the Brit Milah takes place in the reproductive organ of the male. There's nowhere else you could put a symbol of Judaism. It has to be on the private part of the male. Why? The answer is because it had to do with the transformation of how we understand the process of reproduction. That a Jewish person recognized that reproduction is not about transmitting my DNA. It's about transmitting something metaphysical to the next generation. And so Yishmael, because he was born also from Hagar, was not the right vehicle for Avram Avinu's legacy. He was a physical product of Avram Avinu and therefore he gets the brachot of Avram Avinu and to become a great nation and to make many nations and even to be very successful because he has, he has elements of Avram Avinu's greatness that he inherited from Avram Avinu. Just like if a, you'll sometimes see, you know, you'll see these great rabbis and they have a bunch of kids and many of them become also great Talmud Chachamim. But then you'll have one who's not really uh, religious or not so involved in learning, but he becomes a great businessman or he becomes a great scientist or he becomes a great computer uh, person. Meaning they have a certain greatness in them of mind, of, of, of you know, inspiration, but they use it in a different direction than, uh, than you know, than, than, than Torah. So that's what Yishmael had, a certain strength and greatness to him, but it wasn't going to be channeled in the way that Yitzchak's was. Yitzchak is the first child to be born into Kedusha. He's born when Avram Avinu has already made this transition to realize that this child is more than just a biological product. And that's why his name is changed to Avraham and Sarah. What does it mean? Avram is, a, is small, limited, right? It's limited. Avraham means you're a father of many nations. Sarai is also a diminutive, it means smaller. Sarai is a princess of, of, of the world, okay? Meaning you recognize that this child being given to you, Yitzchak, is not even really just for you. It's not even really just for you. This child that's being given to you is is a child that's being given to you to pass on a legacy for the world. 
for the world and for all time. And that's why he's born as a miracle. He's not born naturally because if he had been born naturally that Sarah just was in irregular childbearing years, not only would they not have had the idea of how to look at his birth as a significant event, but they wouldn't have been ready to treat, to raise him with the proper attitude and orientation that he would achieve that goal and achieve that mission. And so that's why when Hashem says to Ishmael, says to Avram that Ishmael will be good because Kizarachau, because he's your, he's your offspring. If he's your offspring, he's not going to be uh, forgotten by God because he's going to be blessed because he came from you as an individual. But in your role as the person who's the foundation of the world, who's bringing, who's bringing awareness of God to the world, in that role, Yitzchak is the one. Because both of his parents are the carriers of the mission. Both Sarah and Avraham, on both sides are going to carry this mission. And th- through Yitzchak, the mission will continue. So to realize that when you have a child, and I think it's important, whenever someone has a child, a Jewish person has a child, or when you go to a wedding even. Uh, oftentimes I think about this when I go to a wedding. When I go to a wedding, I say, I don't see this individual couple, bride and groom. I see the continuity of the Jewish people. You know, when a child is born and they have a Brit Milah, it's wonderful for the couple, for the mom and dad that, they, that their baby is having a Brit Milah and it's a great joy and this baby will bring lots of, you know, nachat and, 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 and a lot of good things to the family. But it's not just about the family. This is the next generation of the Jewish people. This is an, a, a, an obligation on the parents now to make sure that they pass on the proper value so this, this child becomes a leader and a, a, a pillar of the, uh, of the Jewish people. That's really what it's about. And that's why we say two, we don't just say one bracha, but we say two brachot on the Brit Milah. I'm entering the child into the, the, the covenant of Avram Avinu, which means that I'm going to make sure that to raise this child with the proper attitudes and values and understanding and, uh, and, and, and proper uh, uh, commitment to Torah and mitzvot that they're going to fulfill the real objective for which Hashem gave me this child. He didn't give me this child so I could be happy as a, in this moment. He gave me this child because this child has a greater task to fulfill, to continue the legacy of Judaism to the next generation and of the Jewish people. That's the way that great people thought of the births of their children. And that's why every one of the patriarchs and matriarchs, except for Leah, had difficulty conceiving children. Sarah did, Rivka did, and Rachel did. Because they all had to go through a process of recognizing what the significance of their bringing children in the world really was going to be. The Brit Milah is supposed to represent that. But even in order to appreciate the Brit Milah, you have to have this understanding to begin with. In order to appreciate what the Brit Milah really symbolizes. Yeah, what did you want to say? No, I just, I mean, I just noticed it now, maybe I'm mistaken <clears> yeah. but the only times that it says, Vatahar, Vateled Ben, Vatahar, Vateled is when Adam Chava, Vateled is Et Kain, and then when Kain had Chanoch, and then the next His first child, right. And then the first, and then afterwards is the next one, Yitzchak, not even for... Right, it doesn't talk about the pregnancy. No, so it's said, but it's... It seems like at that point that you just mentioned that um, about um, until they realize that they're the continuity, they, they maybe they had their maybe they conceived because they really conceived. They realized there's a greater thing about just not because all the other ones right afterwards they said by by Yolot right. Yolot it's Yolot like Yolot. just happens. It just happened. Yeah. And this one was like seemed like it was maybe they realized that they're. Have to continue. Yeah, they had more of a bigger understanding of what they were doing, especially probably Adam and Chava. You would think that they'd be very aware. 
But even even maybe Cain, because he was trying to build something. So he That's it. And after that, right. because he he was trying to build a legacy for himself because he built a city named after his son. It could be, yeah, it could be. It's a good it's a good observation that the the idea of the pregnancy is only mentioned just for the people who might not be able to hear. Sometimes they can't always hear like what we say on the side. People here can't always hear what people are saying on Zoom and vice versa. So um, so just the point was made that. Uh, that vatar, that the, the, the conception of the child is only mentioned for Adam and Chava when they, when Chava conceives and when Cain's wife conceives. And then the next time conception is mentioned is by Yitzchak and, you know, Yitzchak's conception, meaning when, when Avram and Sarah have Yitzchak. So the idea is that maybe that the, the conception was seen by the parents as something significant and intentional and not just a natural process that, that occurred to them, so to speak, but was something that they undertook with a greater consciousness. That's a very good point. So, but this is, this is the big transition that, um, and, and that's why the Brit Milah has, has that significance that, that um, and why it's so essential to us that we recognize that reproduction is not a biological, for, for us, is not just a biological process, but it's about the continuation of ideas and principles of Torah and Jewish identity. That's number one. And also the Brit Milah represents the, um, the mastery of the ta'avot, the mastery of the instinctual drives. And that's why the Jew, throughout Tanakh, they would always refer to the Gentiles as arelim, the uncircumcised. It means that they have no control over themselves. They're animalistic, right? They're animalistic. They're, they're arelim. What does it mean? Why? So, the, so, but these two things come together actually, because the Brit Milah is a conquering of the instinctual, which is what allows us to see that we're more than just an instinctual being. So, therefore, when we have a child, that child is also more than an instinctual being, and therefore, the way that we raise the child is not just to feed and clothe and change it, but to make sure to educate it properly in the ways of God. And that's what, that's what the idea of the Brit Milah is. So it's saying I'm not a purely an animal, which means the way I conduct myself personally is not animalistic. And the way that I'm going to see my child, the bringing of a child into the world is not going to be through the lens of an animal. It's going to be through the lens of Torah, for the, a truly human lens instead. And so this is, the, this is why Brit Milah is so fundamental to our, our identity. Because it really says everything about what we think we are, what we think our essence is, what we think the essence of our children is supposed to be. And it's so critical because many parents focus so much on the physical needs of their kids, but maybe not enough on the spiritual needs of their kids to make sure that they're raising them in the proper way with the proper values. And they invest much more time and effort in, in, uh, in, in providing for them Physically, and that's why in the Torah, by having Brit Milat at the very beginning of life, basically says from the first week of this child's life, you're already thinking that they're not just a physical being. And that's the hardest time because a newborn really is like just a physical being. All they literally do is eat, go to the bathroom, have the diaper change, and they sleep. And then they wake up again and they do it again. It's like a never ending cycle. Like as soon as you're done changing a the diaper, they're ready to eat again. And then, you know, it's like, and then you never get to sleep in between that. You know, it's like, it's, it's a nonstop cycle. So you really feel, wow, this is just like a creature. This is not like a, there's nothing uniquely human about this creature in the beginning. And that's why the Torah emphasizes Brit Milan in the very beginning so that you recognize from the start that this, that even from the first interactions you have with this baby, you have to already realize there's a, there's a soul. There's a neshama, there's a, there's a nefesh. There is something more than, uh, than a bodily 
bodily existence. And that's, that's the beauty of the Brit Milah. And that's why this is such a significant moment for Avram Avinu as he's transforming his understanding of himself and of his children so that now he's ready to bring Yitzchak into the world. And even though a tzaddik, and that's it, why does Avraham laugh? when Hashem tells him he's going to bring, because a, a tzaddik will always laugh at the idea of a miracle. Because a tzaddik will say, why would a miracle be done for me? The opposite of what most people think. Most people think, why didn't God do a miracle for me? Why didn't I get what I wanted and God do a miracle for me? A tzaddik will always say, it's ridiculous that God would bend his rules and his laws to do a miracle for me. Why would he do that? It doesn't make sense. Now the truth is that it doesn't make sense. Hashem is doing it not for Avram Avinu as an individual. He's doing it for something bigger than Avram Avinu. Right? But Avram couldn't see what, why don't you, just let me succeed with Ishmael and you won't need to break the laws of nature. And Hashem says, no, it has to be through Sarah. It has to be through Sarah because she's the other half of the, of the mission. The two of you together have this zechut to be able to continue this legacy. It's not just you. So, but, but that, again, is, is showing you the humility of Avram Avinu that a, the greater the person, the less they expect Hashem to, uh, uh, to cater to them. And that's why it says, uh, that's why, you know, it says, that, uh, that Moshe Rabbeinu supplicated before Hashem. He begged Hashem. And the word, it says it comes from the word, free. That everything a tzaddik gets, he always feels it's for free. Meaning, I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Even when he does deserve it, he doesn't think that he deserves it. Whereas the average person thinks he didn't get enough. He, he deserved more than what he got and he complains all the time. But a true tzaddik will say the idea that Hashem, creator of heavens and earth, would bend the rules just to give me something, that's laughable. Right? That's, that's a crazy idea. And so that's the right attitude for a person to have to realize that we should not feel that we're deservant of more. We should rather feel grateful for what we're given. And that's, that's also exemplified by Abraham here in, in this parasha. So Bezor Hashem, you know, next week we will be, we'll have opportunity to continue uh, with Parashat Vayira and uh, continue reading the story of Abraham Avinu. And don't, don't forget to everyone to vote.